10, 2002, and I got a sponsor, and my sponsor has a sponsor. And um, my sponsor, he sponsors like hundreds of people, and I have him thoroughly convinced that I am his favorite. And, um, and I guess I've been here for about two months, but before I got here, um, I get the opportunity to travel a lot for AA, so I have friends all over the United States. And before I got here, um, I was given three names. I was given John, Loretta, and Chucks. I was told to find them when I got here. And I got here on Monday, and I found them. And so I made this my home group. And, um, and I'm here to share my experience, strength, and hope with you. And, um, and I'll just start from the beginning. I was born and raised in New Jersey, which does not make me an alcoholic. <laughs> you would think it would, but it doesn't. And I had this father, right? And he was so fabulous. He was drunk all the time. And he was sarcastic and nasty, and he was so funny, and I loved him, absolutely loved him. And I had a mother, and um, she didn't drink. I felt she should have drank, but she didn't. And um, she took care of the house and the kids and my father, and her life looked very boring. And I tell you, I never wanted to be like my mom, <laughs> and I never was, that's for sure. And I don't really have a lot of memories of my childhood. Like, I have two older brothers and one younger sister, and... Um, I don't even remember living with them. So I was self-centered from the very beginning. I don't ever remember them at all. The only um, memories I have as a childhood is um, was being with my dad. He would um, drink all night long, and he'd get up in the morning, and he'd start drinking coffee, and he'd go to work. So he never missed work, and, um, and he didn't go to the lengths I went to, and he didn't do the things that I did. But um, I would get up in the middle of the night with my dad, and he'd watch black and white movies, and I'd pop open a beer, and I'd drink as much as I possibly could until I got into the living room. But I don't remember the effects produced by alcohol at that young age. But I knew I did it a lot. I did it every night with him. <laughs> but um, uh, I tell you, even before, I picked, even before my very first drunk, there was something not right with me. There was something definitely off with me. I was absolutely terrified. Um, I hated school. My first grade teacher, I was absolutely terrified of her. And I was so frozen with fear that I literally would just stand there and I wouldn't move. So this woman had to literally like carry me around because I wouldn't move. So then the kids would make fun of me. So I hated, I hated the kids and I hated the teacher because she embarrassed me. But um, I've been always filled with fear my whole life. I always felt like people were watching me and judging me, you know. But I do remember my very first drunk. And I tell you, without a doubt, it was my very first spiritual experience. I, um, <clears throat> I cut school. And we went to Jersey City to my friend's cousin's house. And, um, and we started to drink. And I tell you, for the first time in my life, I could breathe easy. I could look you in the eye. I could care less who was looking at me. And I found something that absolutely made me whole and complete. And this is how my drinking went from the very beginning to the very end. I started to drink. I immediately became seductive. I went into a blackout and my clothes came off. Except towards the end, I wasn't so seductive, let me tell you. And, uh, and I tell you, I found something that worked so well, that made me so okay, that I was never, ever going to wait for anybody ever to offer me alcohol ever again. I was 14 years old, and um, I would take my lunch money every day, and I would go and stand in front of that liquor store and get old men to buy me alcohol. So I was a daily drinker from the very beginning. And... Um, and I got in a lot of trouble. You know, when you're 14 and you're blacked out and you're naked all over the place, you're getting a lot of trouble, you know what I mean? 
and I got in a lot of trouble, and I had a lot of consequences from the very beginning, and I absolutely did not care. It was well worth everything I had to go through just so I didn't have to be here. Because when I was invisible, I mean, when I was blacked out, I felt like I was invisible. And when life is really hard, invisible is really good, you know. And so at the age of 14, I stood out in front of that liquor store. It was Memorial Day weekend. And I got these old men to buy me alcohol, and I went to the beach, and um, I met these two guys on the beach, and they asked me if I wanted to go drinking with them, and I was like, absolutely. And I, didn't, I never met these men before, and I got in a car with these two men. And what wound up happening that day absolutely changed my world. What happened that day is I wound up getting brutally beaten and raped, which does not make me an alcoholic. What makes me an alcoholic is I'm not like normal people, have an allergic reaction to alcohol. Once I put any alcohol in my body, it sets off a, a phenomenon of craving. And once I start, I cannot stop. And if I do stop, all I do is think about it. But what happened that day, um, I immediately became a victim, and I played that um, rape all the way up until I got into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. But way back then, because it was about 30 years ago, it was 30 years ago, um, they didn't know what to do. They didn't know what to do with people who were raped, and they figured, well, I guess if you, she was raped, if you were raped too, you would need to drink. And they let me drink the way I needed to drink at a very young age. So I was allowed to drink the way I needed to drink at a very young age, and I really believe that um, I didn't have any suicide attempts throughout high school because I was allowed to drink the way I needed to drink, you know. And they started sending me psychiatrists and therapists and counselors, and I went to tons and tons and tons of them, like you, you couldn't even believe and they started putting me on medications because they said I was very, very depressed. And, um, and they would say stuff to me like, now, Patty, if you drink on this medication, it's going to triple the effect of alcohol. And I was like, that is fabulous, you know what I mean? <laughs> so, so, um, so I took my antidepressants by handful, and, um, and I barely made it out of high school. Um, I, got a, um, I got a note from one of my many psychiatrists saying that if I didn't graduate with my class, that I would have a breakdown. And they, they would just had it with me, you know what I mean? So they, so I graduated high school, which I'm very excited about. And, um, and I was 18 years old. And, um, and my family was like, um, yeah, you're 18, you graduated high school, we did our part, it's time for you to go. And I was like, I'll see you later. And I left home at the age of 18. And I moved in with a go-go dancer, right? And, um, she worked at night and I was supposed to watch her son. And, um, and I started getting into a lot of trouble with the law. I started getting DUIs and stuff like that. And um, my life started to become unmanageable. Um, <clears throat> not that my life wasn't unmanageable before, but now it was really getting unmanageable. And I didn't want to quit drinking because I would never want to take away the, the thing that made me so okay and made me whole and complete. But I really felt like I needed to do something, you know. And even as a little girl, I never wanted to get married. And I never wanted to go to college. I never wanted to do those things. The only thing I ever wanted to do was to be a mom. And here my, my life is unmanageable, and I feel like I don't have a reason and purpose for living. So what I think I should do is to get pregnant. Because if I get pregnant, I'll have someone to always love and someone to always love me. So that's what I set out to do. I found this really dumb, dumb guy at a party, right? And I got pregnant. And um, my mother was a little upset because I was raised Catholic, and she thought it was best that I got married. And um, and this is this is how my father describes me. I tell you how fabulous he is. He's so funny. He said that he said that if I was in a stadium filled with brain surgeons, I'd pick up the hot dog vendor, right? And this guy was the hot dog vendor. And um, 
and one of my many, many psychiatrists happened to be a reverend, so my psychiatrist married me, right? And, um, and I didn't plan on staying married. And uh, he got a job one day, which is another miracle in itself, and he went off to work, and I left. I took my little girl, and I left. And I tell you, and I had this little girl that I loved with all my heart and soul. And I wanted to be the best mom. I really did. And um, she had the best of everything, you know. She had the best clothes. She went to the best daycares. We lived in nice places. She had the best of everything, but she never had a mom because I was never there, you know. And um, towards the end of the year, I would um, get a big income tax check because now I have a kid. And um, when I get my big income tax check, I would vacation, and I would leave my little girl behind, you know, and um, and I got to go to a lot of places, but I never seen anything because I was absolutely blacked out. But um, the one time I do remember this because it was very dramatic for me is I was vacationing in Southern California, and I met this really, really hot, hot guy, right? And he's a Marine, and he was stationed there from Minnesota, and um, and I just want to impress, impress him, you know. So what I do is I lie, and I tell you anything you want to hear, and I try to be somebody I'm not just to get you to like me. And he's really athletic, and I am not athletic. And, um, and he lives in California, and I live in New Jersey, and I figured there's no way I can get caught if I lie to him. And he's, like, into hockey and um, skiing and stuff like that. So I figured I'll just tell him an expert scare just to impress him, you know what I mean? And so that's what I did. I told him I was an expert scare, and he was so impressed by me <laughs> that when I got back to Jersey, he called me up and he said, Patty, I'm going to come to New Jersey and I'm going to take you skiing in Vermont. And I thought, oh, my God, that is so fabulous. I never drank in Vermont, you know what I mean? And I figured, <laughs> I figured I'd get him good and loaded because who wants to ski when you could really, when you could drink, you know? But we get to Vermont and he really wants to ski. <laughs> Can you imagine? And I don't know how to ski. And, um... And he thinks I'm an expert skier, so we're going up the expert hill. And I'm telling you, it is really, really, really high. And I've never skied. Even to this day have I skied. And um, we get all the way up to the top. And I'm, like, shaking. He's like, are you all right? I'm like, haven't skied in a while. And so, um, and so I don't know how to get off a ski lift. I barely got on the ski lift. I never skied, you know what I mean? So I don't know how to get off the ski lift, so I fall off the ski lift, and I get all tangled up, so they have to shut down the whole ski lift to untangle me. And so I say to him, I said, you know what? You go ahead and you go skiing, and I'll just meet you down at the bottom of the mountain because, you know, I haven't skied in a while. And so it took me four hours to get down that mountain. I rolled, I climbed, I crawled. I'm telling you, it was a nightmare. And, um, and I was exhausted. But I learned an important lesson that, that day, that I would never, ever lie about being athletic again. <laughs> you know, but I would do crazy stuff like that all the time. You know, I would get myself jammed up by lying, trying to be somebody I'm not, trying to, trying to impress you, trying to fit in, because I didn't even know who I was, you know. And every time um, my life would get unmanageable, I would get pregnant again. <clears throat> and, um, and I tell you, my first two pregnancies, I was able to stop drinking. By the time I was pregnant with my third daughter, I could not stop drinking. And I tell you, and I didn't want to hurt this little girl, you know. I, um, I had um, a priest bless the baby inside me, and I had holy water blessed by the Pope that I put on my stomach every night. And I had prayer services going on all over the country, and I could do all those things, and I couldn't stop drinking. And I tell you, I love 
my kids with all my heart and soul. And as much as I loved them, I couldn't stop drinking. And I tell you, the day that baby came, I was so scared to have her because I didn't know what I did to her. And I had my best friend come with me. And uh, when the doctor went to hand me her, I wouldn't take her because I was afraid. And they handed her to my best friend, and when I seen her smile, I knew she was okay. You know? And, um, <clears throat> and I tell you, I knew that I was powerless over alcohol, and I knew that my life was unmanageable. But I tell you, I didn't concede to my innermost self that I was alcoholic for many years after that. You know, and I wound up on marrying the, their father, and he was a chef, and we got to move all over the place. You know, we, we wound up in Florida, and uh, we wound up in Georgia, and, um, and I'm going to go right up to the end of my drinking. And towards the end of my drinking, we're living in Florida, and I'm telling you, I'm a mess. I have coffee cup filled with vodka hidden all over the house, hidden behind picture frames just in case he tries to take away my bottle. And, um, and I can't go 20 minutes without a drink, and we have this, um, we open up this restaurant, and I tell you, I'm a complete mess, you know. And, um, <clears throat> and I cannot stop drinking. And even if I want to stop drinking, even for like 20 minutes, I would shake so violently. And it would feel like I was hyperventilating. And my head would attack me so bad that I wouldn't know what else to do but just take another drink. And we opened up this restaurant, and I tell you, one, one of the morning, one of the days we pulled into the restaurant, and I'm drinking around the clock, you know, and um. And it was 8 o'clock in the morning, it was a Saturday, and we pulled into the restaurant, and I had my two little girls with me. And um, my little girl was four years old at the time, and we pulled into the restaurant, and I hit, the, I hit a tree in the parking lot. And my little girl, she goes running into the um, restaurant, and she says to her father, she said, Daddy, I'm really afraid. Mommy's acting really weird again, and she fell asleep, and she just hit a tree, and I'm really afraid. And I tell you, and I got into that restaurant, and um, he started yelling and screaming at me. And I looked at my little four-year-old, and I said to her, see what you did? Because I really believed that everybody was the problem. I didn't know that I was the problem, you know? And um, like I said, I never wanted to be married, and I never acted like a married woman. And once again, um, we're here, and I'm not acting like a married woman, and I'm having an affair again with this young guy. And he's had it with me, you know what I mean? And I gotta tell you, my relationship with my ex-husband was very abusive. It really wasn't. By no means do I think I'm a victim here. I absolutely showed up and participated in everything in my world. I absolutely did. But I tell you, I was willing to go to any lengths to drink. And if I pushed this man hard enough, he would scream, he would lock me in a room and scream at me for three hours and tell me what a piece of crap I was. Or he would hit me. And then he would feel really bad and he'd leave me alone for at least a week. And I could drink the way I wanted to for at least a week, and I was willing to take a beating to drink the way I needed to drink. And this man has had it with me, and I'm having an affair. And um, he comes home from work one day, and um, he drags me into the bedroom. And he gets on top of me, and he strangles me till I pass out. And I come to, and he says to me, he said, Patty, if you are ever afraid of me, tonight's the night to be afraid of me because I'm going to kill you. And I could see in his eyes he meant it. There was something different in his eyes. And he got back up on top of me, and he started strangling me till I almost passed out again. He fell off. And I got away, and I was able to get to the phone, and they, the police came, and they arrested him. And they put him in jail, and he had really high bail. And I have this restaurant to run, and I'm a mess. I'm absolutely invisible and a, a complete disaster. 
And the police called one day and they said he was bailed out of jail and that um, he was going home to pack, to get his stuff because he had to leave because now I have a restraining order on him. And, um, and I was already drinking that day. I had about six bottles of wine. Not that I'm a wine drinker, but our restaurant only had a beer and wine license. And um, so I had about six bottles of wine that day, and I was thinking. I started thinking, and I started thinking, you know what I think that my problem is? I think George is the problem. I think if I get back to Jersey, I'll be all right. You know, so I got my little girls in the car, and I stopped, and I got a 100-proof bottle of vodka, and I was going to pack up my kids in in the car, and I was going to head back to Jersey. And what wound up happening was I came to... And my house was filled with the police. And not only was my husband packing up his stuff, but he was packing up the little girl's stuff. And the police said to me that my little girls were better off with him than a drunk as a mother. And they're absolutely right, because I tell you, I endangered my little girls' lives each and every single day. I would put my little girls in my car, and I would drive in blackouts. And I would run over railroad tracks and blow out the tires in my car. And I hit trees, and they were absolutely terrified. And that's not who I wanted to be. I loved my little girls with all my heart and soul. My favorite speaker is Kip C. from California, and he talks about how he comes to on a bus with his little girl, and she's crying, and she's holding her stomach, and and she's shaking. And he says to her, what's the matter, honey? And she said, Daddy, I'm so, so hungry. You forgot to feed me again. And so they get to a bus, they get to a bus stop, a rest stop, and he goes in, he gets a bottle of wine, he gets a sandwich. And when he gets up to the register, he only has enough money for one. And he puts back her sandwich. And that's the kind of drunk I was. No matter how much I wanted to be the best mother in the world and be there for my little girls, I just couldn't. And I knew he had nowhere to go. And so I left. And I tore through Florida, St. Petersburg, really quickly. And, um, and I had nowhere to go. And I wound up going back to Georgia. And I tell you, I got back to Georgia, and I weighed 80 pounds. And I was yellow. And I was bruised from head to toe. And I had this long hair. And it was falling out, and I had bald patches all over my head. And I was a complete mess, and I couldn't go 20 minutes without a drink. And I couldn't work in the public because I was such a disaster. And I moved into this crack hotel. And I tell you, I wound up doing things that I never, ever dreamed I would do. And the things that I had to do each and every single day to get me out of me, to get me a bottle of vodka, was an absolute nightmare. And I didn't dream that's where I would end up. You know, and every day was so hard. And I didn't know people were doing that. I didn't know women that drank like me. And I didn't know women that were that drank like me were doing the things that I was doing. And I was absolutely dying. And I'm living in this crack hotel. And I thought I heard that if, um, if you do drugs, that people do these things. So I started thinking to myself, I should start smoking some of this crack. I'll start feeling better about myself, you know what I mean? <laughs> so that's what I tried to do. I tried to smoke crack, and I was way too drunk to smoke crack. I was better at skiing than I was at smoking crack. And, um, and the crackheads absolutely hated me because what crackheads do when they smoke crack is they get really paranoid and they hide, right? And the last person they want to be found by is me. <laughs> and I would find them, and they were not impressed by me, and they'd be like, just give her back her bottle. So I did try to become a drug addict, but it didn't work out well for me. And, um, 
And I was absolutely dying, but across the street from um, the Crack Hotel was this car dealership, and the mayor owned it. And um, we had this big grand opening to our restaurant. We opened up in Georgia, and he got the ribbon and stuff. So I went over, and I talked to the mayor, and he gave me a job detailing car so I, didn't, so I could drink the way I needed to drink, and I wouldn't be out in the public. I'd be out in the parking lot spraying hoses, drunk out of my mind, seeing rainbows, you know what I mean? And it was fabulous, so I stopped doing those things that I was doing. And I moved out of that crack hotel, and I moved, I moved, into, um, moved into a little trailer park. And I came into work one day, and the mayor says to me, where are the keys to that van? And I don't know why I had these keys, but I had the keys to this van at my, at my house. And he said, grab something off the lot and go home and get those keys because we're selling that vehicle today. So I grabbed this big red truck off the lot because I love trucks, and I went home to get the keys. And while I was there, I started thinking, I must as well have a few drinks while I'm here, you know what I mean? And about six drinks later, I'm like, oh, my God, i got to get back to work. So I start rushing to get back to work, and I come to, and... um the truck is absolutely totaled, and there's police and fire engines and ambulance there. And they put me in an ambulance, and they took me off to the hospital where they put 150 stitches in my face, and then they took me off to jail. And I tell you, when they shut those doors behind me, I was so relieved. I was so relieved to be locked away because I really believed that the only way I could stop drinking is if I was locked away because that was my fifth DUI. And um, the state of New Jersey has sent me to AA. And I don't remember hearing anything. I didn't want to get sober. So I just didn't think that AA worked. I really believed that I needed to be locked away. But eventually my father bailed me out of jail. And um, the mayor fired me. And, um, and so now I'm back doing the same things I was doing before. And I tell you, my world was so small and so dark and so dirty. And it hurt so bad. And I missed my kids. And I couldn't believe what I had to do each and every single day to get me out of me. I hear people talk about in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, not so much in this area, about how hard the steps are. And I tell you, the steps weren't hard for me. What was hard for me is the things that I had to do each and every single day to get me out of me. And I tell you, and I was so tired and so lonely. In the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, it talks about the loneliness that only another alcoholic knows. And I tell you, and I got to the point where um, I couldn't get invisible anymore. And, and it hurt so bad. It just hurt so bad, and I was so tired. And I just couldn't do another day what I had to do to get me out of me. And when I was 14 years old, and I tell you, I prayed all the time. I used to pray to St. Jude. He's the patron saint of hopeless and despair cases. And I would pray to him all the time because I figured God was so far out there. Because when I got raped, I asked my mother, I said, Mom, why would God do this to me? And my mother, you know, she did the best she could. And she said, Patty, God isn't punishing you. He's just making you stronger. So all these years, every time I put myself in the position to be harmed, I believed I was getting stronger to get to God. And this day I didn't say a prayer to God. I mean, to St. Jude, I said a prayer to God. And I said, God, I can't get any stronger. you got to help me. And I know there's a God because God's the only one I ask for help. And I tell you, I took a bottle of Tylenol PMs and I drank a half a gallon of vodka and I came to on June 10, 2002 in intensive care. And they said, you're probably not going to make it. And they took all kinds of tests and eventually it came back that I had no damage whatsoever. And then they shipped me off to a mental hospital. I loved the mental hospital. I don't know if any of you have ever experienced it. I loved it. it was, it's my favorite part of getting sober is the mental hospital. It was so fabulous there. And I wanted to stay there forever and ever and ever. But they kept me there long enough till I stopped shaking long enough till they can get me on a plane and get me back to Jersey. 
and they got me into a rehab, and I had seven days in this rehab. That's all my husband's insurance would cover. And I tell you, by the time I got back to Jersey, all the bloat was completely off of me, and you could see every bone in my body. And I was yellow, and I thought I was like a model, you know what I mean? And I got off that plane, and my family's like, oh, my God, she's dying. And I'm thinking to myself, they are so jealous of me, you know? <laughs> and uh, and then my sister says to me, she's like, oh, my God, I want to take a picture of you. And I'm thinking, I am a model, you know? She's like, because I want to put it on the refrigerator so when anybody goes to drink, they could see what they look like. And I got into this rehab, and I tell you, and I couldn't read and write, and I couldn't think, and I couldn't form sentences. And they want me to do workbooks and worksheets, and I can't. I can't even hold a pencil, even though I went through that de detox. They still shook so bad. And um, they, they were going to get me funded, and they took me up into the office, and they went through my workbooks and my worksheets, and nothing was completed. And they said I wasn't serious about recovery and that I needed to go. And I started to cry because I had nowhere to go. And I knew once I got out there, I'd be doing the same thing I was doing before. So what they decided to do with me is decided to ship me off to York, Pennsylvania. And at York, Pennsylvania is um, a recovery town. It has 180 recovery houses. And, um, and I have no idea what a recovery house is. I know nothing about recovery. I was just willing to go wherever they wanted to send me, you know, because I never wanted to feel that way again. And I never wanted to go through a detox. And I never wanted to do those things that I had to do. And I get into this recovery house, and I tell you, I walk through the doors, and I am absolutely terrified. And there's this girl in the recovery house, and she's on the phone. And she takes one look at me, and she's like, oh, my God, this one is a real doozy. I think she has wet brain. And I was like, oh, my God, I got wet brain, and I don't even know what it is. You know what I mean? And I'm a mess, you know, and I'm showing up to meetings, and I don't know what's going on around me. It's everybody's talking in a different language, and I'm thinking, well, Patty, you got wet brain. You know what I mean? And I would come back to her. And I would say, are you sure I have wet brain? She's like, oh, yeah, I'm pretty sure you got wet brain. And she's like, and not only that, everybody in AA is talking about you. And I knew they were all looking at me. She said, they're all calling you Skeletor. And I was, like, horrified. So now I'm, like, really a mess. I have wet brain. I'm Skeletor. I'm, like, shaking. <clears throat> I'm showing up to meetings. I don't know what's going on around me. I don't understand. It seems like everybody's talking in a different language. Everybody knows what's going on around them, and I don't. And um. And, um, and I see this woman, right? And I start going to different meetings because I think I'm so different. You know, I, I don't know women who've done the things that I've done. And I start going to some different meetings, and I hear women share from the heart, and I hear about the things that they've done and the way that they drink, and I realize that I wasn't so different. And there was this one woman, and she absolutely glowed. And she talks about how she felt like the scum of the earth, and she didn't feel that way today, and she certainly didn't look that way. And... Um, and I tell you, and I hear people talk about how they walk into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous and they see the people with the bright, shiny eyes. But when I got to the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, I didn't see anybody's bright, shiny eyes because I was filled with such guilt and shame for the things that I did. And I know that it was God who sent her because she absolutely glowed. And I went up and I asked her if she would be my sponsor. And she asked me if I was willing to go to any lengths. And I said, absolutely, and I meant it. I went to any lengths to drink. And I tell you, and I got this sponsor, and she didn't pat me on the back and say, sit down, have a cup of coffee, you're going to be okay. That's not what she said to me. She said, Patty, you're going to die. She said, you're absolutely going to die. She said, if you do not do these 12 steps, you will die. And I tell you, this woman absolutely hurt my feelings all the time. She did not care one thing about my feelings, but she absolutely cared about my life. And what she did is she laid down her life for me. 
And she told me, she said, Patty, your whole life people have been telling you if you just stopped drinking, you'd be okay. And she said, and you stopped drinking, and you are definitely not okay. She said, drinking is absolutely not your problem. Drinking is absolutely your solution. And since your solution is not working anymore, you need a new solution. And she said, what you have is a spiritual malady, and what you need is a spiritual solution. She said, you're going to put everything you think and need on the back burner, and you're going to come learn how to live this way of life with me. And that's exactly what it did. She told me everything in this world was temporary. Everything was going to come and go. The only thing that's everlasting is God. And she said, and I must have a strong foundation with God. She told me I was so sick that I must have a love affair with God. She said, because there's going to come a time when the only thing that's going to come between me and a drink is God. And, um, and I started to go through these walk through the 12 steps with this woman, you know, and I had a hard time getting a job because people really don't like to hire you with ball patches and being yellow, you know. And um, But finally I got a job, right? And I'm showing up to my job, and I'm going to meetings, and she said, you're going to get up every morning, you're going to say this third step prayer. And she said, you're going to help as many people as you can that day, and if you can't help them, you better not hurt them. And that's what I started to do. And I tell you, I wanted to drink so, so bad. And every night I'd have drunk dreams. And I, and I would come home from work and I'd go to the meetings and I'd try to help as many people as I could. And I'd throw myself on that kitchen floor of the recovery house and I would cry. Because it felt like everybody was getting better and I wasn't. And I didn't understand what was going on. And I missed my kids so much. And I went to her one day and I tell you, I went to her one day and I said to her, I said, I don't understand. I'm doing everything you're telling me to do. And I don't think God's hearing me because I miss my kids. And I don't understand why I can't hug my kids just for five minutes. And she said, Patty, you don't have to physically hug your kids. God can hug them for you. And she said, no, I want you to go home and I want you to pray about this. And I tell you, I did everything my sponsor told me to do because I was so afraid she'd find out about the wet brain, you know. <laughs> and so I, uh, I went home that night and I prayed. And I had a dream that I walked into a room. And all three of my children were there, and I could feel them hug me. And then two days later, somehow my middle daughter got my phone number, and she called me. And I told her about my dream, and she said, oh, my God, Mom, I had, my, I had the same dream. So if God can bring me and my children together in my dreams, God could do anything. And I tell you, and that obsession was lifted, and I stopped having those drunk dreams. And um, I did a fourth and fifth step with this woman, and what she told me, she said that the things that I did when I was out there doesn't make me who I am. She said, all those things I did um, and all the things I drank, I needed to do all that to get to the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous so I never have to go back out. And she said, and all those dirty, disgusting things that I thought I did when I was out there were going to be my biggest gifts to help other women. And she's absolutely right. I get the opportunity to help tons and tons of women. And I tell you, and I don't regret my past. And she also told me that I was one of God's kids and that God loved me and I should never settle for less. And um, I tell you, I walked away from that fifth step, and I was able to hold my head up just a little bit higher. You know, and at this point, the state of Georgia is looking for me. And, um, and she said, Patty, you really need to do it. We need to get you moving along in your amends. And I tell you, I have a long list of amends and a lot of states to go through. And she said, and we're going to start with the closest state, and we're going to send you back to Jersey. She sent me back to Jersey to stay with this couple in Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm just amazed by Alcoholics Anonymous the way the people of Alcoholics Anonymous lay down their life for each other, and that's what I was taught. And she sent me back to Jersey and she um, to stay with this couple who were going to help me do my amends in Jersey. And my first amends was with my father. And, um, and I tell you, I love my father. And I get there and I can't find him. And I talk to him all the time. And I get in touch with my family, and they said that my father had a stroke that morning. 
and that he was in critical condition, he was paralyzed, and he couldn't talk. And my sponsor said, you still have to make the amends. You have to ask everybody to leave the room and make that amends. And that's what I did. And I said everything she told me to say, and I didn't say I was sorry. She said, Patty, you've been sorry your whole life. Tell him you were wrong for the things that you did. And I told him everything she, that I was supposed to say, and my father started to cry. And I said, Dad, you know, there's a good chance I'll never be that person ever again if I continue doing the things that I'm doing. And my father didn't manage to say the words, I love you. And he died about a week later. So my father did get the opportunity to see me sober before he died, and I got to make amends with both his ex-husband, but my second ex-husband told me, he said, Patty, he said, I really was going to kill you that night. The only reason I didn't kill you is because a bright white light came and hit me in the head and knocked me off of you. And the whole time, I always thought God was so far out there, and the whole time I've always been in the palm of God's hands. You know, I've been through the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I have had a spiritual awakening. And I tell you, um, I was an absolute lunatic. Um, I wanted to save the world, right? I was a complete nut. I was, um, <laughs> I was picking up homeless people. I was in work. I was trying to take people who weren't even alcoholic through the 12 steps. I had, a, I had to do community service at this woman's homeless shelter. I had them all on their knees in the parking lot doing the third step prayer. I got this apartment, and it had a really high ceiling. It used to be um, it used to be a store, and I bought this lumber, and I was going to start stacking these drunks because I was going to save them, right? And, um, and what happened is nobody was staying sober. Nobody was listening to me. And they were all getting drunk. And I was like, I was crying. I'm like, I can't do this. Nobody's listening to me. And my grand sponsor, he said, Patty, they're not supposed to listen to you. And I'm thinking, he's just old. He doesn't know what he's talking about. You know what I mean? <laughs> and um, he said, Patty, you're just a paper girl. You're just supposed to deliver the message. What they do, what is between them and God. And I'm thinking, he is so old. He doesn't know what he's talking about. You know? <laughs> he said, I want you to pray. And I want you to ask God to show you in obvious ways what you're supposed to do. And so I said, and I always follow direction, always. So I prayed that morning just for God to show me in obvious ways because I wanted to stop helping people because nobody was listening to me, you know what I mean? And so um, I prayed that morning before I went to work, and I walked out my front door, and on my front porch was a paper bag where a paper boy abandoned his papers. So God made it real obvious, you know. And... um. After I was about a year sober, I went to my sponsor, found out I didn't have wet brain. Very excited about that. <laughs> and I tell you, I absolutely love Alcoholics Anonymous. Because what Alcoholics Anonymous has done for me is given me a whole brand new life, not a patched up old life. And for that, I will be forever grateful. And I was taught that you lay down your life for another alcoholic. And that's what I try to do every single day. You know, and... um. I want to thank you for letting me share my journey from the darkness and into the light. And I really hope that the God in me has touched the God in you tonight. Thank you.